Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. As the Great Women Artists podcast enters into a new season, I wanted to tell you a little bit about our new collection at Alighieri, The Roots. It's an exploration of the roots of what makes us who we are as people, as communities, as a team. It's inspired by the 20th canto of Purgatorio, where Dante encounters Rachel and Leia, an allegory of the active and the contemplative life. Exploring that in order to create a richer community, we need to see and contemplate what we also need to do. In light of this, the Roots Collection has been shot on a myriad of real women, beginning with the Alighieri team and reaching out to a community of inspiring women, including the lovely Katie Hessel. Follow us on Instagram to watch the story unfold. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I couldn't be more excited to welcome you all back to season four of the Great Women Artists podcast and say that today my guest is the brilliant and highly esteemed curator Tracy Bashkoff. Currently the Director of Collections and Senior Curator at New York's Guggenheim Museum, where she has been since 1993, Tracy has contributed to over 15 special exhibitions in her nearly three-decade tenor, covering a range of 20th century subjects and has organised the museum's exhibitions, including Agnes Martin, a show that I was lucky enough to see, as well as Ellsworth Kelly, a retrospective, Roy Lichtenstein, and many more. Other previous exhibitions include the World Touring Retrospective of Kandinsky, John Baldessari. Group exhibitions include In the Sublime, Mark Rothko, Eve Klein and James Terrell. And since the Guggenheim's inauguration in Bilbao, she has headed up shows on Louise Bourgeois, Gerard Richter, Anselm Kiefer and many, many more. But the reason why we are speaking to Tracy today is because between 2018 and 2019, she curated the most successful exhibition the Guggenheim has ever seen. An exhibition that not only stunned the world, 
and disrupted our history forever, but saw a record number of visitors attend, over 600,000, nearly double that of the previous year's Giacometti show, forced the museum to extend their evening hours and be open seven days a week, despite the show running for a staggering six months. This show was, of course, Hilma Afklint, Paintings for the Future, a groundbreaking exhibition that filled every corner of the gallery by the little-known Swedish artist, whose first ever US solo exhibition it was, held 75 years after her death. That is why, and you can probably tell in my voice that I'm very excited to say that today we will be discussing the legendary, pioneering Hilma Af Clint. Tracy Bashkoff, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, good. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. Really lovely. Thank you so much for coming on today. I mean, I was lucky enough to visit this exhibition, Hilmar F. Clint, Paintings for the Future, at Guggenheim back in January of 2019. And I was just completely blown away by every single aspect of the exhibition, which I can't wait to get into in more detail in this episode. I mean, firstly, it was just so beautifully put together. And I think I can speak for every other visitor who saw the show. Just the most fascinated, I think, stunned I have ever been in a museum in my whole life. I'm sure some, perhaps many of our listeners are familiar with Hilmar F. Clint's work, but if they aren't, it wouldn't come as a surprise because it is only in recent years that her work has come into the spotlight despite the artist working 100 years ago. So I'd just love to start off by asking you, Tracy, why is it that the world has only just woken up to the work of Hilmar F. Clint? It's an amazing story and Hilma's work feels incredibly fresh and the history that she represents has really just found its moment now. Yeah. And that's what's been so fascinating about working on this exhibition is that the work has been known a little bit by the public for some time now. In fact, Hilma of Clint's work was first included in an exhibition in 1986, in an amazing exhibition that was put together by the great curator Maurice Tuckman in Los Angeles. And it was an exhibition that was on the spiritual in art. And it was the first time it was shown publicly since her death wow. in 1944. And so there already, there was this huge pause between 44 and when her work was shown in the 80s. And I always knew of that work. I didn't see the exhibition myself, but the catalog of that exhibition has always lived in a very special place right above my desk. It's been yeah. so important to my own work on Kandinsky. And so... I knew Hilma's work only in reproduction through that catalogue. Absolutely. I mean, do you remember which work of hers that you first saw? And I mean, how does it make you feel? Well, I hadn't seen work in person for many years, and it wasn't until her work was included at a lovely small exhibition at the Drawing Center in New York. And it was shown oh, alongside wow. Agnes Martin, in fact. Oh, really? Wow. Where I saw some of her beautiful watercolors, and they felt so personal and before their time. And so her work has been seen in different exhibition in different contexts around New York City, but not widely at all. And it wasn't until the Guggenheim presented this exhibition that she really, even 30 years after she was first shown in LA, really took the public's imagination. And I think that was a moment to think more expansively about how we tell the story of those early years of abstraction. And so for many years, 
Hilma of Klint's work was left out of that story, mainly because she was not in the mainstream art world. Frequently, it was said that her work didn't go anywhere. There were no people that she influenced at her time because she wasn't showing it, which is really just sort of a narrow way of looking how an artist can have impact. But I think we can be more expansive about how we think about how different People of different genders and of nationalities are all operating at the same time. And so I think, you know, between the beautiful work that she made and the great story of how her work was not known and came to the public, I think it really just captured the imagination and the hearts of people who saw the work. Absolutely. I mean, like I said earlier, just blown away, I think, by every aspect. It's the story, it's the painting, it's the scale, it was everything that was put together. It was all done so beautifully. I think literally the kind of most perfect exhibition I've ever been to. But I mean, what were your initial reactions when you first heard about how her work was rediscovered so many years later and what she went through in her life. I mean, it's so interesting you say she was not influential for those around her because in hindsight, the most influential. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly the influence of her work, I mean, it's really a kind of unique situation in the history of abstraction or of modern art, perhaps, where an artist's work that was unseen for so many years then gets shown. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when was it that you decided to embark on this incredible journey, which was bringing Hilm Rathklint to the United States? Well, I was in conversation with Iris Mueller-Westerman, who's the great curator of Hilma Afklint's exhibition at the Moderna Museet. And we spoke about the importance of Hilma's work in the story and the desire to bring it to New York. But it turned into years of conversation. But I have to say, interestingly, when we first had conversations about Hilma's work and how it fits into the kind of unique story that the Guggenheim has always told about those early years of abstraction in that we always start with Kandinsky's work rather than say cubism. Yeah. Guggenheim has this kind of more eccentric take on things. Yeah. <laughs> but in addition, in my conversations with Iris, she revealed to me that there was this temple that Hilma Afklint had imagined holding her paintings in and that it was a round spiral path temple. Oh my gosh. And we can talk about that more more later, but that kind of connection really sealed it for me. The opportunity to show it in an environment that seemed to be very much similar to what Hilma of Clint and the spirits that she was convening with imagined for these works. Totally. I mean, this just brings it again to the the forefront that this exhibition was just so pioneering, so influential. I mean, there's there's so much I want to know about Hilma and she is really one of the most fascinating artists ever to live and also feels like you were saying earlier, you know, she inspires so many contemporary artists now. She feels so relevant despite the fact that she was working over a century ago. So Hilma F. Klint was born in Sweden in 1862. I mean, what was her childhood like? Who were her family? Was art something that she was interested in growing up? So it seems, you know, she was the fourth of five children and she was born into a family of naval officers and she went to a school for girls, as as would be expected. She did have exposure to art within her family and in school, as well as science. And her grandfather, I believe, was a naval cartographer. He mapped the waterways between Sweden and Russia and and his maps were used for years by the Navy. And her father taught math to the cadets at the Naval Academy 
and he published a book on geometry. And so there was math and science yeah. in her home. And so I imagine that it was a rich atmosphere to grow up in. Absolutely. I mean, also just thinking about the 1860s and 1870s, I mean, on the way to the kind of cusp of the 20th century, there were so many developments being made in science, sort of cosmology. So it's interesting to think that she would have had access to all these maps, all these kind of naval scientific things that clearly must have had an influence on her work. Yes, absolutely. You see more than little connections to the science of her day throughout her work from theories of evolution. I mean, she even names a series of her work, Evolution. You know, it's a moment where x-rays are discovered and just being yeah. visualized. And so you see lots of traces to imagery that one would have found in popular journals touting the different scientific inventions and discoveries of her day. Absolutely. And so just before we get to her education, I am aware that when she was 17, she became interested in sort of theosophy and spiritualism. I mean, what sparked this? And, you know, just for those listeners, maybe you could explain a bit about what theosophy is at that time. So the Clinton family even today describes her as a child that supposedly was particularly perceptive and sensitive to the world around her. And at age 17, she became interested in spiritualism. It was the same year that a British medium named William Eglinton visited Stockholm and spoke in a series of lectures, and it was widely publicized and sort of captured the imagination of the city. But this was the time where she began to be interested in in, in theosophy as well as in spiritualism. And the a year later, uh, when her younger sister died at age 10, wow. Hilma was then 18 years old, and that event heightened her desire to delve into spirituality. And in this early phase of her interest, she was really taken with the idea of communicating with the dead and yeah. through mediums and seances. But in coming years, that sh focus really shifts for her and she moves away from communicating with people who have passed on to communicating with these transcendent spirits and higher powers that she believes exist to bring her closer to a knowledge of an ultimate higher power. So, you know, she begins to participate in these seances and readings. And this is also at the moment where she begins her training as an artist. And yeah, I think that those things become connected for her there. Theosophy was founded in 1875 in New York by a woman named Madame Blavatsky. And oh, wow. so the theosophy that Hilma was reading was written by Blavatsky. And then eventually when Blavatsky moves on, it gets picked up by other women who run that movement. And so it's very interesting and not, I think, accidental at all that Hilma becomes involved in these movements where women are central figures, where women have a voice in a different way than they might in other aspects of society. Absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting because there was an exhibition at the Serpentine a few years ago on Emma Kunz and also last year at the William Morris Gallery on Madge Gill. And these were also both women spiritualist artists working at the time. I mean, it's so interesting. We hear about these artists a century later. And also it's so interesting to think that it was a woman who also pioneered theosophy. I mean, do you think there is some kind of connection with women and spiritualism and spiritualist art? I do. I think that the circles that women artists were moving in at the time in art academies, Hilma of Klint was among the first generation of women to be allowed into the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Stockholm. However, it was still primarily an atmosphere that 
wasn't particularly welcoming to women. Men yeah. were thought of to have inspiration and have great depth to their work. <laughs> women were considered copyists. They were oh my goodness. given... I mean, you know, there's question as to whether or not she would have had access to life drawing classes where there would have been male nudes. And so while the academy did open up um, and allow women in, these places were still restrictive. And so the spiritualist world was a different place. It was communities of women primarily, and women then took these very in-charge roles. They gave lectures in public places to promote spiritualist activities, but there was an alignment between some women's political causes and spiritualists. The suffrage movement was very much linked with spiritualism, and I believe one of Hilma's sisters was a suffragette as well. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And so there are these opportunities for women to speak out in ways that they may not have had in their art lives. And so it's it's interesting that she digs in and marries these things together. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting to think that it's this whole sort of different set of religious ideas or that that kind of thing. And it's completely disrupting religion as, as well. What's going on, it's disrupting science. And fascinating how women really get onto that more than men in a way, because it's something that they would never have to sort of break down in terms of patriarchal barriers. Yes. I mean, there's this interesting thought that women were through their seances and through the practice as a medium had a sort of direct link to these higher voices, these authority powers, (gasps) which in Hilma's, she was in contact with spirits that had male and female qualities to them and names. But as this channel for these authoritative voices, it also gave the women who were participating this authority to speak out as well. And so there's this kind of upsetting, as you say, of patriarchy that's embedded in this practice. Totally. I mean, you mentioned earlier, she graduates from the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Stockholm in 1887. And she sort of became a professional working artist in Stockholm. I mean, what's so interesting is looking at the work that she's making around 1888, such a summer landscape, a beautiful work. I mean, it's so classical. What kind of work was she producing at this time around the 1880s? And how did her interest in spiritualism lead to the sort of stuff that she was making on the cusp of the 20th century? So, Yes, the work that she's making is quite traditional. It's landscapes that are absolutely informed by the art of her time as well. So she was. They're also beautiful as well. Right. They're very beautiful. (laughs) They take from Impressionism and other movements of her day. So she was clearly looking at art around her. And there's so many myths and rumors about Hilma I found when going into organizing this exhibition. And, And that was one of them that she wasn't really an artist and she wasn't a trained artist. And that is not true at all. She went to the academy. And so, yes, she's making really traditional landscapes. She's doing portraiture as well. She makes beautiful botanical drawings. And it's that more traditional work that she does occasionally sell and help support herself through the sale of those artworks. So she was successful. Yes, absolutely. And she graduated from the academy with honors and really established herself as a respective, figurative painter within Stockholm. Upon following graduation, the Academy granted her use of a studio that was centered in the art scene of Stockholm, where, um, in fact, there was an art gallery within the building where Munch showed his work in the early 19... Yeah, in the early 1890s, I think it was 1894, showed showed yeah. his work there. Also, interestingly, 
when that art salon closes, it becomes the first cinema in Stockholm. And so we don't really have direct information about whether or not Hilma was viewing movies there, but it's hard to imagine that she wasn't seeing film. I mean, it's so interesting because she seems at this point in the kind of 1890s, so in tune with what's happening in and around Europe, really, in terms of the art scene. She really feels at the middle of it. She does. She's absolutely tuned in. From time to time, she works illustrating children's books as well as medical illustration. And so she's really quite comfortable and confident as a more traditional artist upon leaving art school. And so the conscious decision to break away from that work and explore this new, really unimagined form of work is just remarkable. Yeah, completely. I mean, when was it that she began to explore spiritualism in her work? Well, she's conducting seances from this early age and forms a group called The Five. And she's part of this group along with close friend Anna Castle and three other women. And they start to meet regularly in the 1890s. And it's at that time, a little later in about 1904, when she's first contacted by some of the spirits that they regularly were in communication with to think about a great commission, Mm. a series of work that would be intended to convey to humanity some of the matters of this spiritual realm. And at the same time, also, one of the spirits speaks about a temple, a great temple that was to be built and that Hilma would have a hand in designing. Oh my gosh. In those early years, there is this connection between art and this spiritual message from this early moment. And she's asked to pick up the paintbrush and to uh, take on this great work. Some of the other women within her circle were also asked if they would dedicate themselves to this great project. But They were wary and they even warned Hilma that maybe this wasn't such a good idea, that (gasps) such such continued kind of close contact with the spirits could end up in madness. And and they they warned her away from the weight that this project would present to her. But she dedicated herself to it and by 1906 really started on this great series of paintings. Totally. I mean, just the year before, she's creating this work called Primordial Chaos, which are kind of these 26 small canvases which portray the birth of the world and the kind of central principles of life. These are, I mean, they were in your exhibition and they're absolutely stunning. And what I love about her work is she works in series and she works in this kind of developmental series. So at the start, we're seeing this kind of almost globe-like, which I you know, can imagine symbolizes the beginning of the earth. And then it kind of goes on and on and on. I mean, can you tell us first about Primordial Chaos that she made before Pages of the Temple? Sure. I, I love that series of work. It's, yeah. As you said, these 26 small canvases, and they're primarily blue and yellow yeah. and green as well. And in Afklin's color theory and in her writing, she talks about yellow being a female color and blue being a male color and green sort of being the union of the two. And so throughout these paintings, you see the beginning of the world. They start with this kind of roiling mass of energy that then splits apart. And then the paintings really go through different moments of being male and female and sometimes coming together. And it's interesting that this idea that there's a unity at the moment of creation, this unity is lost. And then 
life becomes kind of this search to reunite and bring together these opposite forces in everything about the world is highlighted throughout this series. And that's a belief that probably came out of her reading of theosophy. And it's very interesting that really her connection to Eastern philosophies and religions like Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam probably came most directly through theosophy rather than through her own reading of those religions. Absolutely. I mean, one of my favourite ones is of the globe or something split apart and it almost looks like a sort of Cy Twombly or something. Mm -hmm. I can imagine she would have done, you know, automatic drawing. And this is 30 years before Breton's kind of saying that the Surrealists were the one who pioneered this. I mean, you know, not only does she act as the forefront of abstraction, but I mean, surrealism as well. These automatic shapes and drawings, I mean, it's just hypnotic in a way. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, from the very beginning of her work with the five. They had very structured meetings and gatherings where they started their get-togethers with prayers and meditation, and they set up an altar-like space within the homes in which they met, and then they followed that up with a seance. And the seances were then recorded in their notebooks, both in writing as well as through automatism, where a medium would cede their conscious control of their body to these guiding spirits that would create then either texts and writing or imagery through their hands. But by 1903, it was Hilma who became the primary medium for these drawings. And so there are notebooks that have many of these wonderful drawings that are often sort of a a combo of recognizable plant imagery and really just ecstatic markings. They're amazing to look at. Totally. And so on January the 1st in 1906, a spirit that the group referred to as Amaliel gave Afklint a monumental task. She was to create the artwork for the temple's interior, the paintings for the temple. I mean, we've mentioned earlier, this this temple is this kind of round circular place. I mean, very similar to that of the Guggenheim. But, you know, Amalia offered me this work and I answered immediately, yes, wrote Afflint <laughs> in her notebooks. This was a large work that I was to perform in my life. And she went on to paint 111 paintings during the period from 1906 to 1908, you know, that's one painting every fifth day. But the first of this series was called The Ten Largest, which as you entered the Guggenheim was this, you kind of went slightly off. It wasn't sort of part of the round section. I mean, can you tell us about the 10 largest? They're just amazing. I mean, they're this great scale. They're yeah, um, huge. Yeah, they're <laughs> over three meters tall and they're abstract works that incorporate some imagery that feels kind of botanical and cosmological. There are kind of things that vacillate between being sort of seeds and planets at the same time. It's pretty amazing. There are a series of 10 that go through the life cycle of of a human from birth to death. And they are these wonderful pastel colors and really towering if you think about how large a work this would be for a woman in her 40s. Interesting to mention just that, you know, at the time that she really undertakes these paintings for the temple, she's already 43, 44 years old. And we often see photos of her in her youth, in her studio, but indeed she was a more mature woman at the time that she really undertakes this great, amazing leap into this other form of art in her life. Absolutely. I mean, like you said, they're absolutely huge. They're, you know, 10 foot tall. They're giant. When you witness them, you're just completely consumed by all these different kind of languages. And I guess 
this kind of vernacular that she constantly uses. She constantly brings up the spiral again. She constantly kind of brings up this W shape again. I mean, how did you feel when you first saw these works in the flesh? So I first saw these works in Stockholm and I was amazed. I mean, I had seen them in reproduction and I always kind of thought that I was good at you know, reading the caption of a work and and imagining the scale when I look at a an image of it as part of my part of my profession. Yeah. <laughs> but really when I came to see these in person, it was just another really just it was astounding. And they they just it opened up all these kind of ideas and questions for me you know how did she physically make these what sort of studio space was she working in I mean yeah I mean how did she physically make these I mean were they on the floor I guess I mean they're just absolutely monumental yes I mean when one thinks about what she would have seen that would have been this scale prior to the time that she made these we would be talking about grand scale religious painting that one might see in in big cathedrals but Something like this was really unknown, and she may have drawn from imagery in traditional Swedish arts, folk arts, but really to capture this imagery on this scale is really remarkable, and I was quite moved by them. When yeah. you see them all together, and yeah. and you can progress from the first, from the birth through childhood, through adulthood, and, and to death and the end of life, where the color sort of transforms in the canvases and starts to kind of seep out of the canvases. It's really a remarkable cycle to see this kind of life cycle put into these abstract terms is really, really moving. And it's likely that she may have painted them on the floor. We don't know for sure, though there's traces that were pointed out to me by a conservator of where one can see footprints, small wow. sort of shoe prints in some oh of my the gosh. surfaces. And so whether that came when she was creating the work or at another time, it's a little unsure. In her notebooks, she talks about painting them. I think each one, I believe, took four days and then there was a rest period between But I mean, four days. I mean, this is crazy. They're absolutely <laughs> giant. <laughs> and in this condensed period of time. So she does yeah. them every four days for, you know, two months or, or something like that. Yeah, I know she says in her notebooks, the pictures were painted directly through me without any preliminary drawings and with great force. I mean, she must have been up 24 hours a day. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's very interesting the way that she talks about the way the medium operates with her is different in different phases of her life and whether the spirits are potentially controlling her body or putting the imagery right through her or later on where she sort of is inspired and sees imagery but then interprets it herself in a different way but in these early years when she's really diving into these works the spirits are working quite directly with her. I think in this series, the spirit, she's told that to imagine or to to feel as if the spirit is standing beside her as she makes these wow. works as well. Oh my gosh. But it is remarkable that we also see in the works, we see traces of underdrawing and markings where yeah. she, with pencil, drew out some of the shapes and indicated colors even though they were these direct experiences, she had some kind of presence in the process, which is very interesting. And then, as you mentioned, you know, the letter W and she uses H and which may stand for Hilma or other things. She, throughout her work, we see different letters and combination of letters and words that come up over and over again. And she, in fact, kept a 
kind of lexicon notebook yeah. of where alphabetically, letter by letter, yeah. she traces out some of the meanings of these words. And it's not so easily interpreted, let's yeah. say. <laughs> you know, they're not like word puzzles that are meant to be sort of figured out. And for any one of those letters, she lists multiple meanings for those words. And Christine Bergen, a really lovely scholar on Hilma Klint's work, produced a book that reproduces these notebooks of hers where she wow. has written out all of these definitions and they're amazing to look through. And for instance, the letter W has, oh, I don't know, half a dozen meanings that go from anything from the bond between heaven and earth to things like the dark side of the cross. And so she has these different phrases and meanings for all of these letters and words that maybe don't elucidate the canvases as well as one would hope. But I think of it rather as, you know, sort of just bringing more layers and layers of her messages and meanings that we're meant to kind of puzzle out in these things. Totally. I mean, I was obviously lucky enough to see the exhibition at the Guggenheim and these works, but I have to admit it was enormously crowded when I was there, (laughs) um, which, you know, was, was fine. But I was lucky enough, actually, weirdly, I was in Tel Aviv, November, of last year ah. and without me knowing I went to the modern museum on my own no one wants to come with me obviously and they had an exhibition of Hilmar F. Clint and they had the 10 largest and it was just me in the kind of giant basement of this Tel Aviv museum it was just me alone with these Hilmar F. Clint's now ah. I know you must have been alone with the Hilmar F. Clint's at the Guggenheim obviously many times but to be alone with them is quite incredible. They're, they have this like power or this energy, I find. They really do. I have to say, it's funny, the room that you mentioned before where they were in the Guggenheim, they were placed quite close together in order yeah. for the 10 to fit in there. Well, they're just so large. <laughs> they're so large. Um, they were ultimately hung quite close together. And in the planning of the exhibition, <laughs> a little behind the scenes look. I have to say <laughs> that I, I work with a model of the museum with small, lovely oh little, my gosh, amazing. Um, little reproductions. It's, it's like one a of minute the to really, Guggenheim. Exactly. It's, it's, it's tremendous amount of fun. And I would daily walk past the model and I'd, I'd put all the 10 paintings into this room. And it was really one of the only spaces in the Guggenheim that has a high enough ceiling to hold yeah. these paintings. And so it really needed to go into that space. And I would put the 10 in the room and then I'd walk by later in the day and I'd take two of them out and I'd only put eight in because I liked, <laughs> you know, how they spaced out. And then I'd yeah. go back and I'd put the two back in and, you know, and I was struggling with this for some time. And then we read a passage from one of her oh, notebooks wow. that we had translated that talked about imagining that they were this one encompassing environment and that it was, you know, that they were connected. Oh my gosh. And that just all making sense. (laughs) It just right. And I just put the 10 back into the space and (laughs) and um really just embraced the way that they kind of created one connected work all around the room and that it really surrounded you and took you in and it felt settled once I had read that in her notebook. Absolutely. And so did anyone know that she was creating these at the time? So the people that she shared her studio with and the other members of the five, but primarily she kept them out of public view for quite some time and really held them rather privately and close. And people just assumed she was creating these impressionist paintings this entire time. There's stories that the, she used quite a bit of egg tempera in these works. You know, we, <laughs> There's a story that's passed down that people couldn't understand the large amount of eggs that were being <laughs> delivered to her, her studio for her to make these works, which always amused me. But it's an interesting conundrum about her work in that 
this kind of push and pull of how did she want them to be seen or not and where she ultimately chose to show them is interesting and sort of her deliberate removal of herself from the art world in choosing to make work that was so connected to her spiritual practice and look a certain way that was out of step with what Swedish modernism at the time was looking like. I mean, Swedish modernism had a predilection for, you know, figuration. And there was a group called the Young, which was primarily the first avant-garde movement in Sweden. And it was all male members of the group. And so she was outside of that group as well. And it's complex to, to think about how she thought of these works and who the audience was for them. I somehow have come to a place where I think that it wasn't that she didn't want them to be shared or to be seen, but that she wanted them to be seen by a specific audience that was to be understanding and embracing of the works. And yeah. I think that that's something that we see in a few, in what we know about when she did show them with people and share them and show them publicly, as well as these wonderful kind of notebook scrapbooks that she makes later in life that reproduces all of the paintings for the temple, all 193 of them at a small scale with notations around them and little watercolor versions in these kind of presentation books. And I always wondered how those books functioned for her. Yeah. Did she travel with them because she couldn't live with all of these works around her all the time? It was such a huge work in terms of scale as well as in terms of numbers. So these notebooks allowed her to kind of show them to people and share them in ways when she couldn't have the actual work all around her. Definitely. But I mean, in 1908, she invited Austrian philosopher Rudolf Steiner of, you know, the famous Steiner schools, etc., to her studio, whose sort of spiritualist science evolved from theosophy and other mystic tendencies of the time into programs for, for reform. I mean, this is a really interesting studio visit that happens in 1908. She's made you know, the 10 largest, she's made primordial chaos, she's on the way to making the full paintings for the temple. Why did she invite him? And what happened at this visit? And how did his advice affect her? Yeah, it's fascinating. So Steiner visits her, and she had been in correspondence with him, and he's coming through Stockholm, and he comes to see her work in her studio. And he's involved in the Theosophical Society. It's not until, I think, 1912, that he branches out and forms his own anthroposophical movement. And so she would have been well aware of his work and his writings and connected to him through her interest in theosophy. And he comes and sees the work. And what's reported of the visit is that while he appreciates her use of symbolism throughout yeah. the work, he's kind of wary of the process in which he's doing wow. it. He's unconvinced <gasps> by her work as a medium. Oh my gosh. And so he encourages her to rely more on her own introspection and looking to herself to make this imagery. And at this time, she then stops painting for a period of four years. And so between 1908 and 1912, she pauses on making the paintings for the temple. As, oh and she even holds back on making her more traditional figurative work, with some exception. So it's this interesting break. And there's been all sorts of, you know, different theories and takes on exactly what was happening in her life and in her mind and what happens when she returns to work. And I'm always slightly reluctant to completely 
give Rudolf Steiner this kind of power to have shut her down you know, yeah. completely. And the, and the story's sometimes told that way, and it is certainly part of it. But it's also a moment where her mother is ill and goes blind around this time, and Hilma moves out of one studio and moves into another, and she changes her home as well and begins to take care of her mother. One of her descendants said to me that it was a time where she re-ingratiated herself with her family that she had been kind of the black sheep and yeah. hadn't you know <laughs> well they were like where are you making all these works there's like 24 right. hours a day <laughs> you know she hadn't established a family of her own she was a little bit yeah. of, of an outside entity and so she kind of came back and took up this role of caretaker for her mother for yeah. the remainder of her mother's life I mean I have to sort of slightly rewind because you know Steiner was also a friend of Kandinsky and this is probably a myth I'm sure <laughs> but uh, I do know that Steiner was in the possession of kind of miniature versions of her work and did see them I mean he did know Kandinsky do you think there was any conversation I mean 1911 was when sort of Kandinsky kind of invents abstraction if you will yeah it's a great theory and <laughs> you know I, again it's one of those I do love to sit and imagine various scenarios I love you too of contact that she might have had during this time and it's pretty fascinating because we know that Kandinsky at the onset of World War One had been living in Munich and he ups and moves back to Russia and so on his way back to Russia he spends time in Stockholm no and in <gasps> 1914 he shows at this great Baltic exhibition in Mount and Hilma of Clint also shows at that same <gasps> exhibition. And, no. and Kandinsky by 1914 is showing abstract work yeah. in this great Baltic exhibition in the Russia section. And Hilma's in the Swedish section and is showing traditional landscape paintings. And so oh we don't have any proof that they ever kind of cross paths. And yeah. certainly she wasn't showing the abstract work at the time. Wow. So this story of Steiner connecting the two is an interesting one, though. It is one that I haven't seen the historical record for yet, but yeah, um, who who but, knows? But who knows? Yeah. But in these years after, you know, it was so interesting when I was at the Guggenheim show, because as you kind of went up and around the beautiful kind of winding staircase that the Guggenheim has, that is just totally seamless and harmonious, you come across these incredible works that she made in 915 called The Swan. And actually someone, when I was there, cried in front of this work when oh. I was there. They were so moved. They screamed. They were next to me. And I was just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> But, you know, I think I think she has this effect on people. And, and what's so beautiful about The Swan is that it's this series that gets progressively more abstract. You know, you start with this beautiful kind of actual figurative representations of these swans meeting together with their beaks, with this kind of horizontal line. And then it turns completely abstract. I mean, can you tell us about this series? Yeah, they're wonderful. As you said, they start with these rendered swans and there's yeah. two of them and then there's four of them. And primarily there's a white one and a black one. And there's also other interesting coloration that she does with the color of their feet and color of an oh, area yes. around yeah, their beaks. Feet. Right. They have One of them has blue feet and one of them has yellow feet. So again, it's the female and the male. And so you've got, again, these dualities that are opposite each other and they they fight each other and unfortunately we didn't have the entire series at the museum because of space you know considerations yeah. but <laughs> she made um, what was it 1300 paintings in her right <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah, so. 
Yeah. So as soon as one curates an exhibition, you always are missing the things that you know are missing yeah. that that maybe others don't, but you see their absence all the time as you walk through the exhibition. And this was one of those series where we truncated the transformation, but the swans kind of, they fight with each other and then they sort of swirl together until they become this abstract form and they become even more geometrically abstracted in the series and come sort of cubes and squares that face off with one another. And there's this splitting of canvases into these two sort of black and white zones that also ultimately combine and become more chromatic. And so they're really fascinating to see as a whole. And the swan was both a alchemical symbol, symbol of something changing from one form to another, right? You know, alchemy, as well as theosophical, as well, something Blavatsky wrote about the, this kind of the greatness of, of the swan. And so again, her work just kind of combining all of these occult and religious and different belief systems into this beautiful message. But it is a moment where we know that in the more avant-garde art communities, we're also seeing a more abstract vocabulary yeah, um, really absolutely. emerge. And so again, like we don't really know how much she was seeing of those avant-garde's at the time, but it's hard to imagine that she wasn't potentially given her engagement in the art scene earlier in her life. But again, another one of those moments where it's terrific to sit and think about it and speculate. I think so. And then, you know, as we kind of wind up, you get to this beautiful, it was just perfectly placed again. I mean, everything about this exhibition, I think (laughs) Hilma probably envisioned it a century ago. But, you know, you get to the altarpieces series, which are, I mean, these works themselves have become so iconic. You know, people have tattoos of these works. People are just obsessed with these works. I mean, what did the altarpiece series represent? I mean, I assume this was the altarpiece at her temple, temple which was her Guggenheim. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So, you know, there are these three works that are large scale again. They were meant for the inner sanctum, the final room of the temple. And we happily had them brought out on walls and kind of facing and creating sort of a little small altar area where one could kind of stand and and look at all three together and and imagine what they would have been like in a chamber of their own at the top of this temple that she imagined. So she referred to them as a summary of the paintings for the temple series and that there are three canvases and two of them, one has a path leading upward and one has a path leading downward. And the third canvas is is sort of a giant glowing orb that is the unity perhaps of the two. And, you know, at this time, again, she knew very little about what the building would ultimately look like that would house these works. But we do know that in a later notebook from about 1930-31, she sketched out what she thought that this temple space should look like. And it was a three-level round building that was connected by a kind of four level tower and that it was this stepped pyramidal form. um, Oh my goodness. (laughs) You know, with an altar room at the top and that devotees would progress upward through the works, passing these, you know, I think what she refers to as physical pictures on the way. Oh my gosh. And that there would be sort of a certain power and calm to the experience and to the building. And the vision of a round building may have had other influences that she would have been well aware of in her life. There was a 
a 12th century round church on the Isle of Munso, which is where she spent time from 1912, really through the end of her life. And so that shape may have held quite spiritual and important experiences and references for her. Absolutely. I mean, it just all seems so meant in a way. And so, you know, what happened towards her later life? I mean, she died in 1944, interestingly, the same year as both Mondrian and Kandinsky. Fascinating. But I mean, what happened towards the end of her life? I mean, was she still working? She does. She still works. There's there's a scale shift, to be sure, but she's still connected to imagery based on her religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs in her work between 1916 and 1920. But she's no longer working mediumistically at this time. Yeah. She's exploring imagery about different religions. But from about 1930 onward, she really dedicates herself to working in this kind of wet on wet watercolor method, which yeah, is often beautiful. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're just these atmospheric works that are these layers of of color and feel quite intimate, but also kind of universal at the same time. They're really lovely. And sometimes you'll see snails and spirals and symbols that she relied on throughout her work come up again in these watercolors, natural forms and such. And they're really very moving. And there are hundreds of these. There's photos of what her home looked like towards the end of her life. And the walls are covered with these small watercolors. Uh, wow. Kind of, kind of layered up the walls. But, you know, interestingly, in, in this time period also, we know thanks to the amazing work by Julia Boss, and she discovered that in 1928, Hilma of Klint showed three works, and we suspect, given the size, that they are the three altarpieces that we oh, were talking wow. about. Yeah. And she shows them in London, in fact, in 1928 at a World Conference of Spiritual Science. Oh and my on, gosh. Yeah, it's amazing. And Julia found a little flyer that lists this exhibition of these works as part of this conference. And again, in showing them not at a gallery and not at a museum, but yeah. at, in the context that they were made for and in a way that she would have been assured that the audiences that were seeing them were understanding the messages that she was putting forth in the works. Julia has gone on to find yet another exhibition in 1913, <gasps> even earlier. Oh, wow. Um, where she showed some of the non-representational yeah. paintings for the temple. And so oh it's amazing gosh. as soon as you work on an exhibition or a catalog, you know, it's, it, it becomes out of <laughs> date almost immediately. <laughs> and it's it's amazing. And that's one yeah. of the really rewarding moments in, in your work is how you see that you're just a moment in the interpretation of these wonderful objects and they have this fabulous life and they are understanding just continues to grow and change and deepen as these stories move on. Absolutely. And so when she did die in 1944, I mean, what happened to the works and all the notes? Because I mean, her work totaled nearly 1,300 works as well as a few portrait commissions. And obviously, tens of thousands of notes. Yes, the notebooks are remarkable. The writing goes on and on. I mean, that will be a life's work to um, <laughs> see those interpreted I was, yeah. you know, and translated. So the work went into storage. She had written in a notebook. So some years before her death, she indicates in a notebook that the works should not be seen until 20 years after her death. 
Oh my gosh. And so everything is stored, I'm, I'm told, in an attic space. In, a giant in, attic space. <laughs> a giant attic space, exactly. And <laughs> remained in an attic space of a family building and remained on family property. And was given to a, a nephew that wasn't an art world, didn't have an art oh world gosh. experience. And, wow, he must have been so confused. <laughs> and the work remained under these conditions for many years. And as the story goes, there were some attempts to show the work in the 1960s, following 20 years after her passing. And again, one imagines that the art world of the 1960s was perhaps not the most conducive for this type of work at that time. It was pop art and minimalism (laughs) and color field painting. I feel like we're in the age of rediscovering art. Right. Enough. <laughs> exactly. Like that was not not the moment. There's even a story that a family member went to visit or wrote to the director of the Moderna Museet at the time and offered all of the works to wow. the director. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, you know, I can easily imagine that that would have just think of it a, a, a woman's work art yeah. that was never seen as far as we knew during her lifetime. And so. Yeah. It wasn't until that show in Los Angeles in 1986 where Maurice Tuckman told me the story that he knew a curator in Sweden who mentioned uh, when upon hearing that there was this artist and this family who had this large body of work and that he should go see it. And so he included the work in that landmark exhibition. And then it goes from there. So quite an amazing story. (laughs) I mean, just incredible. When curating the exhibition, did you expect? the response that you had? <laughs> it's funny, you know, yes and no. I have to say I did, I, I really did have belief in the work. And for me, it was an exhibition where I really was working with other people who know so much more about Hilma of Clint than I do and had really taken these steps before me. And I was standing on their great shoulders, people like Iris and Daniel Birnbaum was a great supporter. He was the director at the Moderna Museum at the time and was a great supporter of the work and was truly convinced that it would find its audience in New York. And I absolutely was right there beside them thinking that the time was right for the work. But we were really, really still taken and pleasantly surprised about how not only the number of people that came to the exhibition, but really how heartfelt and embracing the response was. And that was what was so truly rewarding was the way that people connected with the work and that it extended beyond an art world audience. And that's been really lovely. And I felt really happy to be connected to a moment where people could authentically have these wonderful experiences in front of the actual works. And, And that was quite rewarding. And so how has she changed our view of art history and where should we place her? Uh, you know, I think, uh, <laughs> you know, that, it's funny, we, we, we struggled with that, I think, at the beginning when we were thinking about bringing the exhibition and presenting the exhibition, we thought about, you know, do we call her a modernist? Does she need that title? And I think ultimately we just said it, it wasn't important what the label was and that um, what was important was that she was there and that her story and her existence puts all sorts of pressures and questions to our understanding and that chance to look at things anew and to be revisionist and reconsider things that we had taken really or had seen in just one way for so long was really one of the important things about presenting the work. 
And so I think she has changed our view of art history. I think that we can really be more embracing of lots of different paths in a way that I didn't think before yeah. we had the capacity for. And so that's been quite rewarding. Absolutely. What does she mean to you? For me, I mean, it's about a truth to one's own self. Her work is about being committed to something that you believe in and despite whatever obstacles and even, you know, putting up your own obstacles that she sort of made her own way and stayed truthful to that vision is the lesson I take from it. Absolutely. Well, Tracy, thank you so so much for this incredible insight to Hilmar Afklint. I just have one last question for you, which is I always ask our guests on the Great Human Artists podcast. If you ever had the chance to meet Hilmar Afklint, what would you say to her? Oh, oh love it. Oh. You know, I think, well, I think what I would say to her is thank you, right? You yeah. know, I, I would just thank her for that opportunity to share that vision and to understand what it means now. But I think the question I would want to ask her most would be, are we the audience that she imagined yeah. for her work? You know, we called the exhibition Paintings for the Future because of this idea that she envisioned these works to have a life that extended her own and that was for a future audience and for some people to kind of understand things in a different way as time moved on. And so, yeah, I'd want to know if she felt the time was right. Absolutely. Tracy, thank you so, so much. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 41st episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Tracy Bashkoff on the staggeringly groundbreaking Hilma Afklint. I am just in awe at the story. I can't believe it and really recommend you all to look up her work because it is just incredible. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Amber Miller. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. <laughs>